Welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Stephanie Kuntz is the author of five books on gender, family, and history, including Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, which was cited in the U.S. Supreme Court decision on marriage equality. She's the director for the Council on Contemporary Families, as well as Emeritus Faculty of History and Family Studies at the Evergreen State College in Washington. One of the big ironies of the adoption of no-fault divorce in any country and state that has done it so far is that it initially leads to a big increase in divorce, but then it also leads at the same time to a decrease in domestic violence, in wives' suicides, and in the long run, especially, well, I think almost exclusively in countries where women have economic and educational independence and this has begun to grow over time, we also see another big, interesting curvilinear thing. The divorce rate initially goes up because women are wanting change in traditional marriage and men are resisting it. But as men accept it more, and as women get more options not even to enter a marriage that doesn't look like it will be satisfying, the divorce rate tends to go down. So here in the United States, the divorce rate has been falling since the 1980s. So divorce certainly isn't going to go away. And in fact, the divorce rate for couples in their 50s and 60s has actually gone up because people are no longer willing to stay in an empty shell uh, marriage, uh, if that's what happens. But it's certainly having easy divorce has lots and lots of benefits, and it doesn't have to be a threat to a marriage if, in fact, people are aware that they need to do marriage in a different way now that people have options outside marriage, and especially now that women are equal, because a lot of the dynamics of marital discussions used to be based upon women hinting around, trying to get the men to understand what was going on, or just accommodating, accommodating, accommodating until they couldn't bear it anymore. And that doesn't work anymore. (laughs) I'd also heard that statistic about kind of the baby boomer age the divorce rates going up later on in life, but then younger couples, the the divorce rate going down. And that seems to have a lot to do with the egalitarian marriages you mentioned earlier on. And since the 1990s, how those had transformed themselves into being the most satisfactory marriages after a long period of struggle in which the satisfaction was 
related to being the opposite of and more of those stereotypical roles. And then after a certain point shifted into that becoming now the more successful and fulfilling model. Yes, I don't think, though, we can take it for granted. Actually, demographers debate and sociologists debate about this older divorces among older couples. And some of them think it will completely die down because these are couples that have probably been married a couple of times, many of them, and they come from that earlier divorce-prone baby boom age. But I think that our standards of marriage are so much higher than they used to be that it's really important to understand that, for example, during the child-rearing stages, where it is increasingly kind of a joint effort, that's going to keep you together. But if you don't work on your, not just your relationship, but your ability to have an interesting life together afterwards, I think that people may find that once the kids are gone, if they continue to slide by, or even while the kids are there and they don't live up to the new expectations of equality, that resentments or discontents may build up that come later. So marriage is something that in a way it never was before that you have to renew. So I don't think anybody has gone along with what you mentioned earlier. It it expires and you have to physically renew it at, at the license bureau. But I think we all have to remember that we have to renew it in terms of making sure that our relationship grows as we grow. Right. And one of the most important things, as kind of some experts say, but also people who are close to me have mentioned one of the most important parts of their partnership is just continuing to choose that person, continuing to work on things or seek out new ways to be happy or explore or learn together, just continuing to choose that, uh, especially now in in this day and age when it, it is a choice. Um, yes, well, there's, there's a couple of different ways to do that, though. For example, you can choose to stay home with your partner or go out on date nights and stare into each other's eyes soulfully after and try to think of new things to say. But the research suggests that one of the best way to continue to choose your partner is to continue to choose others as well. Not not in the sexual uh, sense that <laughs> I, I mean, but in the sense that that you choose to socialize with other people, to have new experiences, Mm -hmm. to learn new things, to bring home new things to each other, because that's what keeps the marriage alive or the relationship. It's true for cohabiting relationships too. And I always kind of comment, well, people think it's so important and focus on exploring or having fun in the bedroom, how trying new things whether it's in the kitchen or in the gym or, you know, on a trip, it's kind of that same, it's the attitude and doing those things elsewhere also lends itself to deeper connection inside the bedroom or it builds a foundation and it builds a a curiosity and overcoming obstacles and unfamiliar territory and trying things you might not be good at, but learning and improving and it's all kind of tied together. And it's so much more than putting on an outfit or one date night. I, I agree completely. <laughs> so you kind of, have touched on this in your research, but also in our interview thus far, this kind of political influence. And so that's going back in history to, you know, Cleopatra and using marriage as a political tool and power and all of that. But then all the way up, through rather than politics being on the, as the consequence of 
it's kind of the cause of shaping this institution, shaping our relationships from media campaigns, political campaigns that stereotype gender roles, you know, in the 50s and stuff like that. So I'd love for, I know this is a huge topic, but I'd love to kind of dive a bit deeper into helping people understand the political, socioeconomic and media influence on both ends, like the giving and receiving end of our relationships and marriage. Marriage has been used politically for thousands of years. It was used very directly to control. There were political battles over who could marry whom. They were political maneuvering in order to get the best marriages because marriage was so important in terms of gaining political and economic power. Over the last couple of hundred years, politics of marriage have changed in a different way. And I think the thing that has most influenced us comes from about the 19th century. And that is that two things coincided there that changed our definitions of marriage and our definitions of marital roles. One was the triumph of the love match, the idea that young people should be able to choose who they wanted. That scared the heck out of traditionalists. You know, they said, how are you going to get people to marry the right people? How are you going to prevent them from saying that they should divorce if the love goes away? So they were casting around for a way to think about how to make sure that men and women knew that they needed each other and needed to stay married. And that intersected with other changes in the kind of way that we produce goods with the development of wage labor and very, very undeveloped markets. So you needed somebody to go out to work, to earn money, to buy the raw materials that used to be made at home or exchanged in the community. But you also needed someone at home to process them. So you got a division of labor which helped create the ideal of the male breadwinner family, which, as I said earlier, had not been an ideal. Through most of history, men and women were considered co-providers, yoke mates, teammates, whatever they wanted to call them. But now you got this idea that men go out and they are the ones who represent the family to the outside world, who deal with the you know, down and dirty business of the market and the politics. And women stay home and take care of the child and take care of the communal values and kinship values that used to be shared more widely in the community and between men and women. And the result was a new idea of love as a marriage of opposites. This was not true in in a lot of the past. The idea was that men and women had completely different spheres and skills and natures and desires. And that's not used to be true. It used to be true that women were sort of considered having about the same ideas as men, but they just had to be subordinate because that's the way it was. And in fact, women were not considered more virtuous to the extent that their men were considered superior. They were considered more virtuous and more superior and women more prey to religious error and sexual error. All of this reverses in the 19th century. And you get this idea that marriage is no longer based supposedly on hierarchy. It's based on the union of opposites and women that have to be under the protection of men. Men are the ones who do all the things outside, women the inside. And the only way you get access to the skills, emotions, and resources of the other is by getting married and, of course, staying married. So this new ideal of marriage as a union of opposites helped stabilize marriage. It helped explain the 
differences and different legal rights of men and women in a world that was somewhat more democratic than the past. It also created all sorts of barriers between men and women so that women and men, you know, were kind of strangers. It really deformed, I think, our ideas of erotic attraction, whereas women began to think of, uh, to confuse anxiety with attraction. We had to fall in love with these dangerous characters who knew all these things we didn't and who could actually, you know, were so powerful that they could hurt us unless we won them over to our side and, and convinced them that we were so feminine that we need to be protected and cherished and not dealt with in the brutal way that these uh, male breadwinners dealt with the rest of the world. And that's been the theme of, of romance novels, uh, most romance novels ever since. Men, for their part, learned that manhood was protecting and providing. Sometimes that took the, a nice form of chivalry. Other times uh, it took the form of fury when a woman refused protection. But all of these things these stereotypes were established then in the 19th century. They were slightly sexualized in the 20th century, but still maintained. And in the 50s, this idea of this um, gendered family, male breadwinner family, also got conflated with the new celebration of a market economy. And it was supposedly was what separated us from Russia, that we had suburban kitchens where our Women could cook in their own little kitchen and the men went off to work uh, at home and there were these suburbs that we lived in and that was the, the, the American way. And so in the last 40 years, we have been challenging that organization of work. We've been challenging those ideas about gender, but we have all this leftover and we have politicians who, of course, manipulate the old symbols. Oh, if we would just go back to these 1950s families, everything would be fine. If women would just know their place or at least regain their place once they got married and had kids, everything would be fine. We wouldn't have poverty if there was no divorce and no non-marriage. All of these things that, in fact, nonsense, when you look at the sociological statistics behind them, have become a political weapon for making people feel guilty or trying to convince people to ignore social and economic changes that we should be making. But they also get internalized, even for those of us who see ourselves as real pioneers <laughs> of new relationships. They're still hard to overcome. All these tapes are playing in our head. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There are some ways in which it's easy to recognize the way the past has influenced the present but other ways in which it happens more kind of subliminally almost, as we kind of talked about before, the fact that rape was legal in marriages in the U.S. until... It varied by states. The first yeah. state did it in, 17, uh, in 1976. <laughs> the last state, I think, did it in about 1993. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. So when you, you know, have these antiquated laws, and for example, I lived two years in Chile, which is the strongest economy in Latin America, very modern country in so many ways, and divorce became legal in 2004. So there are some ways in which it's obvious that these things affect us, but then other more subtle ways, be it language or policies, especially now with in our judicial system, so many things are so difficult to overturn with same-sex marriage, the past continues to shape the present, whether we know it or not. 
Well, it does so in so many different ways. One way, of course, is the extent to which we took a market economy that worked well as long as it was involved in some kind of regulation and some kind of limits and have turned that into an idea that everything can be commodified, that corporations itself are people, even though they can't be held to account for crimes that they commit. So that's one problem that we face, and especially in countries that don't have enough social protections for families uh, in terms of raising their children and taking time off from work. The other one is a more insidious one, and that is that even among people who really want to be egalitarian, we have these kinds of uh, leftover ideas that in some ways are very comforting uh, to fall back on when mm-hmm. when things get hard to, mm-hmm. to forge a more egalitarian relationship. You know, there's a side of male protectiveness and, and even mansplaining that is understandable, that is an attempt to say, you know, here, I'd like to help out. Many women uh, really cling to this idea that we have better knowledge and better skills and the emotional world, and in the raising of children, or even the housekeeping. I talk a lot of datekeeping is, is often referred to when a woman says, I want you to help with the child rearing, but then says, I want you to do it my way. You can be my unskilled assistant. Mm-hmm. And I, my husband caught me a couple of years ago reloading the dishwasher after he'd loaded it. And he said, well, what motivation do I have to load the dishwasher if you're going <laughs> to treat me as though I do it wrong? And I went, you're right, you know? <laughs> yeah. So all of these things, in addition to the really bad ones that most of us agree we'd like to root out, even if we don't always know how to do it, there are these ones that are softer, but in many ways very destructive because they give us the excuse to fall back on these kind of easy gender roles that, in fact, in the long run are not easy and that extract a cost on mothers, fathers, and kids, but that don't seem oppressive in the way that the old rules did. So I think that's something that we all need to struggle with and really figure out what in our relationship are we sliding by on that in the long run may come back to bite us. Yeah, I remember when we first chatted how you mentioned that if women want to be viewed as equally capable breadwinners, then they need to try and view men as equally capable homekeepers or child rearers, etc. And so to kind of flip the coin in that like anti-cliche way to to turn things around, I always love trying to think about things from the other perspective and how great of a point that is from both sides of the coin. It's hard to do because you can have it. It's a bit of a have a cake and want it too. I love my husband to do all the unskilled labor in the in the kitchen. You know, you chop the celery and the onions and stuff, but I get to do the creative end part. Yeah, gotta have a compromise. Although I guess that the idea is though compromise would involve coming to a middle where people both give in on what they want versus finding a match that works for both people and benefits both people and is a choice. Same-sex marriage is a benefit uh, or going to be a benefit to uh, heterosexual marriages as well, because one of the things that same-sex couples do much better than heterosexual couples is not only divide the work more fairly or evenly, but also divide it on a more individualized basis. It's not that everybody has to do exactly the same thing or half of everything. But when men and women who are in a heterosexual relationship start talking about who does what, 
They have so many gender stereotypes to fall back on and so much experience. I know how to do this kind of cooking. You know how to set mousetraps, you know, that it's just easy to divide it in ways that don't necessarily fit the kind of growth that we'd like to see in ourselves or our partner. And same-sex couples talk about this division a lot more than different sex couples do. And so that's uh, something we can learn from them in terms of improving our relationships. Yeah, I had actually read that it's not a division of the tasks in any way, but more a sharing of all of them that lends itself to greater success and satisfaction in those relationships. I think you can overdo that. You don't have to share everything 50-50. Right, right. No, 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 just in some way. But yes, for example... Um, What Dan Carlson's research shows is that the things that make women most unhappy is when the dishes aren't shared. And I completely see that because that's a task that takes place after dinner where the other partner is probably going to be doing relaxing. And it just sounds it's just annoying (laughs) to have to do that all by yourself. Um, If that were traded off or there were other things, that's that's quite a different situation. And the thing that makes men happiest is when the shopping is shared. And that makes them happier than when the wife does it all or when they do it all. And I think that's a really good, I suspect that reflects the fact that in really specialized um, Mm. divisions of labor, when women are gatekeepers, they don't trust the man to do the shopping, to make those kind of decisions, you know, they Mm. got to be in charge. And so that shared task probably reflects what we've been talking about, the confidence and trust that your partner may make a few different decisions than you do, but is perfectly capable of making good decisions and you can learn from them. And even if they aren't the ones you made, it's going to work. (laughs) Going back to how it's these traditions from the past in one of the articles I read while I was reading up on you and your research, discussing weddings and how much of that from, you know, the color of the dress to giving away the daughter to having, you know, these first dances and these agreements or asking permission, all of these things that on paper would seem very antiquated in many ways, but are still followed. And so I guess that could be seen as a positive or a negative, but there was this one part that kind of discussed how the reason a wedding became about the woman and this big day for her was, as it says in this article, women's understanding that marriage required them to subordinate their personhood to the role of devoted wife helps explain why so many women began to think of their wedding day as their last occasion to shine. So what is now this big day in celebration, it actually comes from the fact that it was like, well, you won't really be a person after this. Like, cheers to your independence. Hope you look as pretty as you can and have as much fun as you can on this last day. Yeah, yeah. This was a pretty common theme in 19th century women's diaries and letters They knew they had to get married, so they were often uh, really in a hurry to accept a proposal. But once they had the proposal, they would often really postpone the wedding date uh, while the men would push and push and push for it, because that was that in-between period where they knew they were going to be provided for, but they still had some independence. And some of the quotes that you read in that article actually came from men who observed friends of theirs marrying and said it's like they're being buried, one of the guys said. But it's also important to recognize that the a lot of the wedding traditions are, in fact, class status things. For example, white 
people think that women wear white because that was a sign of virtue. Actually, the traditional color for virginity and virtue uh, was blue, not white. White became popular after Queen Victoria wore it at her wedding. And I think a lot of the reason it became popular was white was a real class signifier. For one thing, if you were presented at court, you had to wear a white dress with at least a three-foot train. The other thing is that in those days with cobblestone streets, no pavement, no cleaning, a white dress was really an extravagance. Up until the 20s and 30s, most women got married in either their best dress or a dress that they bought that they could wear for many, many other occasions. And a white dress was something that even if you wore it again, it was going to take huge amounts of cleaning. And probably you would never wear it again. I mean, that train (laughs) dragging across Mm -hmm. the ground might never get clean. So it was a huge expression of class status. And one of the few ways that women in a competitive market society that had developed by that time, where your economic, not your breeding, your wealth, not your breeding, was the most important status symbol. It's the way that the only way that they could compete for that. So when we start doing that same thing in the 21st century, I think we might want to take a closer look, even though it, it, of course, it feels fun to dress up. But that emphasis on it being the bride's day is a leftover from the time when it was, in fact, the last day that a bride would shine in her own uh, individual way. It's interesting how essentially the color white also came out of, you know, what would have been then the Vogue magazine, you know, looking at these other people or these marketing campaigns. It was a class thing and diamonds also, the engagement ring and diamonds also came out of essentially marketing campaigns. So interesting to re-examine the sources of what we consider, quote, traditions. And, and sentiment. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, well, as we wrap up here, I'd love to just kind of have you give sort of some actionable advice to our listeners in terms of how you think that they could take what we've learned throughout this conversation and kind of re-examine the way they live their relationships or perhaps, you know, what they consider these you know, sentiments or traditions or stereotypes? Well, I think that it's so important for people to, on the one hand, understand how some of the habits that we take for granted are actually reflections of patterns of behavior that are not good for us as individuals or for our relationships. Really examine those and see if we can change them. On the other hand, I think it's also important not to do self-blame or parent blame or whatever blame. You know, we have this tendency to think that, oh, gosh, we've got to root all this out individually. You can also, at the same time as you're trying to change, you can let yourself and other people off the hook by recognizing that some of the conflicts you have in your relationships, the ambivalences you have as a person, are not because you or your partner are bad people or flawed people is because you've been getting these messages for these hundreds of years and particularly strongly for 150 years. And so it's understandable to have them. And instead of getting angry about it or self-blaming about it, why don't you talk it through? Because I personally find that knowing the history and the social context of issues I've had with my husband or my son or whatever often helps me step back from it 
and depersonalize it, make it more of something we can discuss as a symptom of larger things that are happening to everyone. Thank you so much. I have no doubt that'll be helpful as people go forward after listening to this. And I look forward to continuing this conversation and hopefully diving even deeper into some of these subtopics the next time. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Bye.